Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Ape Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today I'm joined by Lisa Unger-Baskin who is a collector, a bookseller and an activist. Lisa's collection of books, printed material and other objects describes the history of working women across the centuries. It features about 11,000 rare books and thousands of manuscripts, journals, ephemera and artifacts, including Virginia Woolf's writing desk. In 2015, Lisa placed her collection with Duke University's Sally Bingham Center for Women's History and Culture in the Rubenstein Library. From December the 11th until February the 8th, 2020, highlights from Lisa's collection are going to be featured in an exhibition at the Grolier Club in Manhattan. Now, if you don't know the Grolia, it's a society for bibliophiles and was founded in 1884. 500 years of women's work, the Lisa Unger Baskin Collection will provide a glimpse into this collector's mission to uncover and recognize the contribution of women in work. Visitors will see a collection that took 45 years to put together. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you, Richard. I'm delighted to be able to speak with you today. Thank you for joining us. My first question is, you spent many years, decades, assembling the collection. Was it difficult to hand it over to Duke University? Well, as a collector, of course it was difficult. However, um, that is just a rather glib and easy response to the question. It's a much more complex um, response to that question that I have. Um, and it is because I live, it, it has always, first of all, it has always been my intention uh, that the collection should be used, should be available, should be open to scholars and activists and members of communities who could have access to seeing the representation of a history that essentially has not been taught to us. So I live in a New England farmhouse, a wooden house. It wasn't particularly safe. My anxiety was enormous. Um, and the well-being of the collection was really the most important thing to me. Uh, and, and so it was, it was time. It was time. And there was a process. There was a terrific process. And, and of course, the, the meeting with Duke, I had no relationship at all with Duke University. Um, the meeting came out of um, uh, my son being stranded in an airport, coming back from RBMS with uh, Andy Armacost, who was at Duke at the Rubenstein Library. They were coming back from RBMS, my son, um, Jose is an antiquarian bookseller, and they were stranded in an airport for hours. And that was the first that Duke learned of the collection. And it was about that time that I was um, finally considering, uh, it was the summer after we had a number of catastrophic weather events. We had um, uh, tornadoes down the road in Springfield. We had a hurricane, Hurricane Irene, uh, that summer that wiped out covered bridges that had been standing for centuries. Uh, and we had a freak snowstorm on Halloween, and we had no power for um, a considerable length of time. And it was that that finally 
precipitated my understanding that it was just too dangerous and and too risky to have um, the collection in my house. So that was really what spurred me on, okay. my sense of responsibility about the stuff. So if we go back in time to when you started the collection, why did you... St- why did you decide to focus on women in work? Was it because of what was happening in the 60s at the time? Well, I was active in, in the late 50s and early 60s in um, the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. Um, and, of course, later in the 60s, uh, the women's movement began. And, and um, I was always a collector. I collected as a kid. I think most collectors, you scratch a little bit and you find that they collected something as a child. Um, and it was my political activism with my, linked with my collecting instincts that, that led me to begin to look more and more for things that um, demonstrated that women had played a greater role than, than we had. Um, thought in an over a long period of time. So I was really interested in, in discovering women booksellers, um, uh, women printers, um, women bricklayers, women who earned a living um, as layers out of the dead. So it's, you know, it all came together at a good moment. So perhaps you could give us one or two examples from the collection where a book or an object shows something about women in work that you simply weren't expecting? Well, I, I, the interesting thing, of course, is that this was all revelatory to me. I had no idea. Everything um, was unexpected. Um, my collection is completely intentional. It was always um, trying to ferret out things that were unexpected. And I suppose, unintentional. But this was a history that I had no idea existed. And and I think um, it was a huge voyage of discovery for me. So it it wasn't, I can't say that, oh, I found such and such a thing. I think the entirety um, of the collection uh, demonstrates that there are so many areas that women have not been uh, recognized who have participated in areas and, and 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 it's clear the collection is not a literary collection though um, willy-nilly there is literature in the collection and the early women writers from oh, the renaissance right through um, and, and I did have a, a pretty significant Bronte collection as well um, so it was really a complete voyage of discovery for me. And all these years later, do you still feel frustrated at all at the lack of recognition that working women receive? Well, I guess what I feel most is that women haven't achieved parity. They don't get paid on an equal basis as men do. They, of course, are now... Um, we see women going to medical school um, 150 years ago. That was not a common thing when Elizabeth Blackwell went to medical school. Um, so, but what, what I, 
I wish that I could say that there was um, more recognition of their participation in so many levels of society. And of course, my collection really, you know, I'm limited, though the collection has vast numbers of um, books that are printed in uh, Latin and French and Renaissance books um, Italy. Um, I feel and have always felt constricted because of my um, inability to um, to understand Asian languages. Um, so I, I have, though there are a few things in the collection that are, um, so I, I feel that restriction is placed on it by my own inadequacies, um, being able not to, uh, not to be able to um, read and perceive and, and find things that represent other, other cultures in, in the world. Though so I do have um, things representing African women and um, Latin American women and early, let's say early Mexican women printers. I mean, they existed. I didn't know they existed. So, next question. <laughs> so, for a humble, um, a humble role such as you mentioned, bricklaying or something like that, um, how would that have been recorded in in books or, or, or printed materials if we go back well, a few I centuries? Guess, yeah, I guess it's it's um, the little card that advertises a woman as a bricklayer. Um, is a piece of ephemera. So the collection has thousands and thousands of pieces of ephemera in it. And it's it's those bits and pieces of paper that were often discarded and not kept um, that really document this history. And without those bits and pieces of ephemera, we don't really know that women did these things. So these would be pay slips tax forms, what, what would they be? Um, advertising cards. Um, I have two cards of women who were... It's, it's interesting to me that there are traditional roles that women played in society, and one of those roles was um, as layers out of the dead. Um, when, when someone died, uh, there was inevitably a woman in the village or who would come by and um, um, prepare the body and lay the body out, possibly on the dining room table. But at some point in the 19th century, um, women began to earn a living at that. They began to charge money for that. They began to advertise for that service. And I have two um, trade cards of women. And in fact, these are trade cards from Pennsylvania. Um, women who were advertising as layers out of the dead. Now, your uh, collector's statement for Duke University, where you described the, the themes in the collection and, and why you collected, you say that you don't need a lot of money to be a collector. So how did you go about assembling this collection over the years without breaking the bank? Well, I, that's, one of the interesting things was that I lived in England for 10 years, and um, I began going to book fairs and tag sales and 
flea markets and yard sales and jumble sales. And I was able to acquire vast numbers of books. We lived in the southwest of England in Devon, and there were a terrific group of booksellers around um, the first Tiverton Book Fair in the southwest. I don't know if you know very much about the, the trade in the UK, but um, there is a, a provincial booksellers association. It was founded by a man called Jerry Mosdell, and Jerry's still alive and going, and is still doing the Yorkshire Book Fair, the, yeah, the York Book Fair. And uh, Jerry started, I would buy from him. I used to go up to London and go to the book fairs at the Russell. Um, and the first Tiverton book fair I met, I, I, I often say that, that building a collection like this is something you, you can't do it alone. It's on the shoulders of, of so many other people. And um, at the first Tiverton book fair that we went to, and this is in the early 1970s, I met a wonderful dealer called Jeff Towns. Uh, and Jeff still is a close friend. And when he used to come to America and exhibit at the Boston Book Fair, um, he would, of course, come and visit. But And I see him frequently. But I think the role of booksellers who have understood what I was about has been really key, critical to being able to uh, build a collection. But I could buy so many things for a pound or 50p or a um, dollar. Um, we used to travel up and down the coast of Maine uh, and New England uh, in the summers, and um, I had an, I had at that time an open shop I exhibited at fairs, and um, I had a bookshop in uh, in Maine, and was deeply involved in the trade, and so it all in some way came together in the support. So I don't think it takes a great deal of money. And what I was looking for was something that was really not of interest to most people. The humble, unherited uh, advertising cards, that sort of thing. Yes, but also, um, I, you know, I didn't know there was a history. I didn't know, you know, I, I understood the suffrage movement. I understood there was... Um, a lot of stuff that would come out um, from the suffrage movements in both England and America. And I was acquiring uh, and did acquire fantastic suffrage material. Do you think the younger generation then will understand, it'll help the younger generation understand history when they go and see your collection at Duke or the Grolier? Well, I, hope, I do hope so. And it, it is exciting to people to see um, that there is a history. Um, I teach at CABS, the Colorado Antiquarian Book Seminar, which in fact is moving to uh, St. Olaf College in Minnesota um, this coming summer. Um, and it's very exciting to, to share what I've done and uh, some of my own experiences with um, young booksellers and librarians. Um, so you mentioned you spent some years in, in, in the UK and England, in Devon. Um, did you travel elsewhere, to, uh, elsewhere such as Europe, to, um, to look for books? 
Um, of course. And I bought books when we were in America. I bought books in England. And I um, have, you know, wherever I am, I somehow manage to find something. And it's finding things that are not particularly um, of interest to other people or haven't yet achieved that kind of uh, visibility or quote-unquote value. But its value was, to me, um, piecing together a history that was essentially not noticed and little recorded. So you base your travels around visits to bookshops and book fairs? Went to bookshops, book fairs. Um, I buy still at bookshops, book fairs, flea markets, wherever I can. Um, when you were building the collection, well, as you say, you're still building the collection. I'm still at it, yes, absolutely, <laughs> I'm still at it. Is there anything that you could pick out that was truly unexpected, a, a discovery that literally took your breath away when something you weren't expecting? Um, I used to, when we lived in England, I would occasionally go to um, the Sotheby's or to Christie's to attend a sale. And I used to also go to the provincial book uh, auctions in, in the UK. But... I happily, in, in, in the exhibition, there is a needlework uh, sampler embroidery that was done by Charlotte Bronte. And um, it was one of my unexpected and terrific acquisitions. I was able to buy it for a pittance at, at an auction. Uh, because it was in, from my point of view, it was in the right sale, but it was in the wrong sale. Um, it was in a clothing sale with 14 gowns and, and, and the like. Uh, it wasn't in a literary sale. And um, so that was quite unexpected and a very happy acquisition for me. I think that would be a highly priced item today. It is now quite a highly priced item. And, and there is... Um, I've been able to find... Um, because of books, there is a wonderful catalog, a very extensive and terrific catalog of the art of the Brontes. And um, uh, as I was going through, and that's why research libraries are important to us all, and reference collections are really important to us all, um, I was able to find that Charlotte, Bronte had done a preparatory drawing of the composition in this needlework. Yep. Um, does the collection cover uh, wh where women are pushed to the edges of society, so things like prostitution and maybe crime? Does it cover those oh, areas? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and prostitution, of course, was a way for women to earn a living. Um, I did just recently acquire a wonderful small piece of ephemera. Um, a little pamphlet from um, a dealer in the UK. Um, I, I read lists avidly um, on Tuesdays when they're out, um, and I, I came across a, a listing, and it's it's an enormously interesting listing uh, for a pamphlet uh, relating to prostitution and girls. Um, 
And it was earning a living, absolutely. Though that wasn't the take on the pamphlet, but that was my my response to the pamphlet was this is another way we're documenting. And in fact, it did document how um, young women um, who were driven to prostitution um, because they needed an income, they needed money. So this is all, it all fits together. And I, I presume you also cover um, how uh, changes in society resulted in women women doing traditional jobs that were usually done by men in the two world wars. Was there also documentation and materials for that? Yes, um, there's, uh, there's a, quite a bit of um, both uh, England and America uh, documentation of uh, women in the wars. There's a rather marvelous um, photographic album documenting women working um, in the war effort in England. There's a huge, in the exhibition at the Grolier Club, there's a huge um, poster of women's work, and it was, um, it's a colossal poster of uh, women's work. Um, it's just typographic, but it's terrific, and it's women's work in the war. So there's, you know, it's, 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 it's tough to go to an exhibition and see only books, so we've tried to use images and extract images, and there are manuscripts in the exhibition as well. Um, the catalog, I don't know if you've seen the catalog, which Open All distributes. Um, the catalog is, um, is designed by women. Uh, the typefaces that were used were designed by women, uh, type designers. Um, it was printed by a company that one of the three principals is a woman. So I'm trying very hard to, to follow, you know, you can't just um, talk about this, you have to walk the walk. So when you had the collection in your, your farmhouse in New England, and it contains all of these thousands and thousands of objects. How on earth did you organize your home and your collection? <laughs> I have. Um, there are, needless to say, books in all the rooms in the house, but there is a proper library. Um, and in the library, um, I organized, and, and I should interject that the, the books were shelved, uh, double shelved, um, and in one or two instances, they were triple shelved as well. Um, so they were organized essentially by subject matter. So women in science and, and technology were in one section. Um, though there was a central core of the books, and those were sort of the, the early quote-unquote books. Um, labor, labor history, anarchism, social movement, suffrage. They were by subject, organized by subject, yes. And had you actually written down what you had? Had you cataloged it in any way, or, or did you... Oh, oh, uh, oh, so, of course, I have a complete database uh, of everything um, that I've owned and own um, still, and I'm still, as I acquire things, I try to keep up, but 
don't always succeed in, in entering uh, things into a database. Yeah, and I, in, in the back of every book, I make a notation on the, um, usually the rear paste down or fly leaf um, in pencil, um, where I acquired it, from whom I purchased it, um, the date of acquisition, and then I put um, um, my, a number. You know, we all do that. I put the acquisition number, the database number. Um, so it's organized. It's, it's pretty well organized, so it's chaos, and I find myself these days um, buying more and more paper because I pretty much priced myself out of um, the book market. Um, I can't buy as I once did. Um, I can't afford it, but, but I'm still buying. I'm still acquiring. Yes. So now with the collection in Duke's hands, it's available to, or it will be available to, to scholars, researchers, students who can request a particular bit or some materials from it. Is that how it works? Yes. So there is, uh, there, there is an, uh, a, there are two websites. There's a website uh, for the exhibition um, at Duke, and then there is another website. There's a website really about the collection, and. It has a little video of introduction, and, um, but if you scroll down on that website, um, you can see how many books have been cataloged so far, and they've hit over 7,000 um, entries in, the data, in, in their cataloging um, process at Duke. And so let's say they're cataloging a manuscript collection. I had over 200 uh, Emma Goldman letters, um, 200-250, and they have now digitized the entire Goldman uh, collection. It's freely open, available, open access, no paywall. Um, and that, that was really, really important to me, that people could have access to the collection, but it was not shut off. Um, because you, you don't know what's there unless unless you see it somehow or find a reference. Uh, finally, uh, Lisa, the question that we ask all guests is, um, what book or books are you currently reading? Um, I'm reading. I'm reading. I read in books a lot, um, but I'm reading. Um, I'm reading. Two books that I think are interesting to me for a particular reason. One is uh, Eric Foner's Gateway to Freedom, um, and it's it's a book about the Underground Railroad and the area I live in in Western Massachusetts. There was a utopian community, and that utopian community was established in the 1840s um, before the Fugitive Slave Act, and people came here. Um, to raise sugar beets, to weave silk, um, because they didn't want to trade with objects that were slave-produced. And phoners, and one of the people that was here was a man called David Ruggles. And of course, most people know uh, about this 
community because it's where Sojourner Truth lived, and she had a house here for 14 years. Um, but Sonar really writes a great deal about Ruggles, and, and the book is, as I said, Gateway to Freedom, and that's interesting to me. I'm reading also Ida B. Wells. There's a, a wonderful, um, the Schomburg Library in New York has a, um, a library of black women writers, and Ida B. Wells has always been central to what I think about and what I'm what I'm doing. She was a, a journalist. She was um, a pamphleteer. She published articles, but she was a key person in anti-lynching movement in the United States. And she also was a suffragist. And she began some of the first um, suffrage organizations um, that included um, black women in America. So I'm reading her writings, and I uh, there is a wonderful pamphlet of hers in my exhibition um, that she published herself. She was a Chicago um, resident. So that's what I'm reading. I'd be willing to bet that you also... And, and book catalogs and oh, right. newspapers, and I'm fanatically, you know, watching um, the trying to watch some of the hearings uh, um, in Congress about um, impeachment. Yes. I'd be willing to bet that you also have an extensive number of books about books. Would I be right in saying that? Yeah, I do, and I have a, an enormous number of books. One of the areas that I've collected in and I'm really interested in is the history of bookbinding and women who were binders. Of course, we know about the the women in the late 19th century who were binders um, in the arts and crafts movement. Uh, and there are quite a number of handsome examples in the collection. But I'm interested in people who were doing, you know, women were always involved in printing. Women were always involved in book selling because they were family enterprises. And there's a, a Philadelphia woman printer uh, called Jane Aiken. And Jane Aiken, in fact, began by running her father's bindery. Her father was a printer and, and bookseller, and she was running the bindery and bound books. So, yes, I am interested in books about books and the history of books, and in particular, uh, bookbinding um and, and printers, early printing. Yes, I think we all need good reference books. Um, it's important. Lovely. So that's all we have time for this week. Um, I would like to thank Lisa Unger Baskin for joining us. Um, 500 years of women's work for Lisa Unger Baskin Collection will go on show at the Grolier Club. From December 11th until February 8th next year, 2020, you can visit groliaclub.org for more details about the exhibition. You can also go to the Duke University website to learn more about Lisa's collection. Uh, I hope the exhibition goes well, Lisa. Good luck. Um, thank you. Thank you us. very much, Richard. Thank you for and, joining us. Um, a pleasure to speak with you today. Lovely. And we will see everyone next time. Thank you.